Exodus chapter 17, verse 1, the Israelites are gathered in a place called Rephidim, where they're grumbling against Moses and quarreling with Moses, the leader, because there's not enough water to drink, and so they're thirsty. And then God says, in quarreling with Moses, the leader of Israel, you're testing me, God himself. And so God does something very gracious, so he allows Moses to take his staff and strike the rock, and what flows out of the rock? Waters just flow in the desert, and the people drink, and the animals drink, and everyone is satisfied. And so here we are, picking up in Exodus 17, verses 8 and following, after that story that happened in Rephidim, we're in the same place, and something else happens in verse 8, hear the word of the Lord. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out of the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, Yahweh is my banner, or as you might have heard, Jehovah Nisi, saying, a hand upon the throne of Yahweh. Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Here we have in this text the first mention of multiple things. One of those is the first mention of Joshua, the second in command, the sergeant major to Moses, the leader of Israel. And you have the first time also that God instructs anybody to write something down. This is a very interesting and overlooked passage. But it's a very important passage for the redemptive history of where we are in the Bible today. And it's an interesting passage for us because we are a nation at war. Sometimes we forget that. I definitely have not forgotten that for six weeks they've been telling me how I'm going to go and be a pastor of soldiers who have been fighting wars. And we're in the longest war we've ever been in as a country. Did you know that? In September 11th, it's been the longest war that we've been in with Iraq and now in Afghanistan as well. And so... We're a country at war, constantly. There's constantly troops being sent overseas and fighting and coming back home. There's all sorts of problems that they bring back with them. And we are people, as Christians, who are at war as well. We're all at war. Even the unbeliever is at war. We're people in a spiritual battle. We forget that. We, we get used to the battle, and so we forget that we are people at war. And today we're going to see God, in his initiative against the Amalekites, do something which we could call... Operation Obliteration, because he totally destroys the Malachites and promises that they will never survive in the history books beyond this text in the scriptures themselves. And so our great joy today is to see God reminding us of the battle that we're in, fighting the battle for us, and as the main point that I want to get across to you today is that the battle belongs 
to the Lord. Can you say that with me? The battle belongs to the Lord. The story reveals God's intent to preserve his people in the face of a great enemy. And before we get into the text, I want to just ask you, who is the great enemy of the church today? Now, we could have three options from the text, and I want you to pick the, the right one. Okay, so behind door number one, the first enemy of the church is the church leadership. Church leadership is the problem. Chapter 17, the people grumble against Moses. They quarrel with the leader. Look, Moses, what are you doing? Why did you bring us out of Egypt into this desert where we're parched and thirsty? We want to go back to Egypt, they would say over and over again. Is the problem the church leadership? Is the church leadership our enemy? Is the leadership of the church what's holding you back from spiritual growth? That's door number one. Door number two would be God himself. Is God the problem? Is God our enemy? God has you know, withheld his water from us and the food that we want and the things that we love. Is it God? They're, they're testing God in chapter 17. But is God the true enemy of his people, Israel, or the church? And then there's door number three. In the text, the Amalekites, representing the enemies of God, who are terrorizing the people of Israel. And in the New Testament, we learn throughout the whole Bible, too, that it's, it's sin, which is our enemy, and Satan, and the, the system, as you could say it, or the world, the godless world that exists. So sin and Satan and the system of evil in the world. That's door number three. That's your third option. Which one will you choose today? Which one will you choose to fight? Which one will you choose to live in mortal combat against? Would it be church leadership and other Christians, by the way? Will it be God himself for not giving you what you deserve or want? Or will it be sin and Satan in the system of the godless world that's opposed to everything in Christ? That's your choice to make and that's your choice to live. And you have to pick one and you have to fight the battle against one of those options. Now the story continues in chapter 17 of Exodus with our first point that the fight is never fair in this battle that we wage. The battle is never a fair fight. The Amalekites were a nomadic tribe that came against Israel. When Israel had just left the land of Egypt and they were just beginning to march toward the promised land, which we know later became 40 years of wilderness wandering. But here's their first major test. After the parting of the Red Sea, they're out, they're free. Now, here come the Amalekites. Listen to what description we read in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, about the Amalekites and what they did on this day. Remember what Amalek did you on the way as you came out of Egypt. He attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and he cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. It sounds like, remember the Alamo, or we will never forget September 11th. Remember what Amalek did, don't ever forget, because God's going to wipe those people off the face of the earth. You need to remember what they did to you and why he destroyed them. Because he came after the vulnerable and the weak, the old folks, the elderly, the little children, the crippled and the lame, the ones who couldn't keep up with the other 12 tribes of Israel, those were the ones on the fringe of the battle. On the ragged edge of the battlefield is where Amalek struck. Taking what we would call an unfair advantage or asymmetrical warfare, they played dirty. They were terrorists. This was a terrorist attack, not against the army of Israel, but against the weak and the most vulnerable. They, it's almost like ISIS got their playbook right out of Exodus 17. Uh, bombing hospitals and schools where children are, that's what these people were about. 
Isn't that how the spiritual battle often goes? Isn't that how spiritual attack often happens? When you're weak, when you're vulnerable, people that are hurting, that's when Satan and sin and the world take advantage and come and attack us. And so we see that this is why the church exists. This is why living hope exists in this place. We want to be on the ragged edge of the battle where the people are most hurting. That's why we're here. That's why we're not somewhere else where it's easier. Because we want to be where the weak are, where they've been attacked, where there are problems that are just impossible without the help of the Lord. But we believe that the battle belongs to the Lord. And that's why we're here. Our battle is never a fair fight. Evil doesn't play by the rules. But the irony of this text, the, the funny thing for the Amalekites, is they thought they were getting the upper hand, but they were fighting against God. And, and this point would be true for the Amalekites, just like it's true for us. It's never a fair fight when you fight against God. The Amalekites learn it the hard way. That's our second point. The battle was already decided from the beginning. The battle has already been decided for the Israelites and for you and for me. In chapter 17, verse 9, Moses says to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek, for tomorrow I will stand upon the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Tomorrow, he says. Now, tomorrow wasn't just an ordinary day. In the book of Exodus, the word tomorrow is actually very pregnant with meaning. It's full of dynamite, you could say. The word tomorrow means something very, very powerful. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 have multiple references to tomorrow when God says to the Egyptians, tomorrow I'm going to, and then what's he say? Basically, kick some Egyptian tail. Tomorrow I'm going to bring yet another plague. Tomorrow I'm going to wipe them out in another way. Tomorrow I'm going to cut them off of the knees. Tomorrow is always the theological code word in the book of Exodus for the day of power, the day of glory, the day of victory. The day where God shows up and does what? Shows off. Right? The day that God shows up and brings victory to his hurting, weak, and oppressed people. Now, today is the day in the text where there's the attack. Today is the day when you see the battle lines forming and there's the Amalekites, and you're thinking, what are we going to do? Today is the day when you have panic, when you have anxiety, when you have hopelessness. Today is the day when you start to give up, when you're weak and weary. That's the day. That's the day that you're in right now. You're in today. But what is tomorrow? Tomorrow's the day that God says, will begin to accomplish great things. The smoke will clear on the battlefield, and you will see the, the victory banner waving. You will see Christ risen from the dead. You will see there, there's hope yet again. See, tomorrow means hope. If you can make it past today, if you can see beyond today with vision to see tomorrow, with hope, that's victory. Yesterday, you might have wanted to give up, but you're still here today, right? That's a victory. That's a small victory. That's one of the victories God's accomplishing. If you can just have hope for tomorrow, what God will do in your life, battle is already decided, brothers and sisters. Tomorrow is coming. And in the end, of course, Christ will come back and settle all the scores, and he will win every victory for us, and he will be the King of kings, Lord of lords, and every eye will see him, and every knee will bow as we sung today. But the battle's already decided. Tomorrow is as good as here. And so that encourages us to do what's next. We must fight. We must not lose hope. We mustn't give up. We must fight in the battle. Now, you might think, well, if the battle's already won, and we're good Reformed Presbyterians here, we believe that God is sovereign, and that he's got the end planned out from beginning to end. The whole thing's determined. Yes, we believe the Bible teaches that. Does that mean that we don't have to fight? Does that mean that we don't have to work? Does that mean that we don't have to pray? Does that mean that we don't have to witness? Does that mean that we don't have to love each other and do good deeds to serve those that are in need? Of course not. This point tells us 
from the scriptures that we must fight. And we don't fight despite or in spite of the fact that God will win the battle, but we fight because God will be victorious. We fight, we work, we obey the commands of Jesus. We must fight because every victory is from the Lord. Every victory is from the Lord's hand. When Moses told Joshua, go and choose fighting men, he said, not, okay, I want you to just go down there and assemble in the, in the valley and just lay down on your faces in the posture of prayer. He didn't say, get on your knees and lift your hands to heaven. He said, go and put on armor and take up swords. That's what he said to do. Now, I've been wearing some armor lately, and it's heavy. It's not comfortable. It, you know, 30 to 45 pound vest on your front and back, helmets on your head, 30 to 40 pounds, 75 pound rucksacks on your back. This stuff gets heavy. And God said, I want you to strap yourself down with all the human armor that you have. Protect yourself. And I want you to march down to that valley below, and you're going to fight. You're going to take up the sword. You're going to use your skills that you've been trained in, or the lack thereof, and you're going to fight the Amalekites, who probably were better prepared. And were on the offensive, which gives them the advantage. But you're going down, and you're going to fight. We believe that God's already decided the end from the beginning. The battle is the Lord. The victory is His. But we still have to do our part. We still have to wake up every day, go to work. Read the Word. Learn it. Memorize it. Speak it to each other. Pray for each other. Bring meals to those that are sick and hurting. Lay hands on those and pray for them that are depressed and distressed. This is our calling. To do what God has done means we accomplish what He has ordained both in His end goal and also the means that get to that end goal. God has ordained both the end result and He's ordained the means to get to the end of the war, the end of the battle. Does that make sense? God has ordained that you pray. God has ordained that you work. He's ordained that you sweat, and sometimes you bleed, so that you can fight in the battle. But he's guaranteed. The battle is his. The battle is promised. The battle is the Lord's. And Moses takes the staff, that rod that God had given him back in the days of Egypt, where he'd done all the miracles with the ten plagues. He takes the staff and the rod. He goes up onto the mountaintop, up onto this hill, overlooking the valley where the war is being waged. And what does he do? He lifts his hand. He lifts the staff. And as he lifts the staff, what begins to happen? The Israelites prevail. They win the battle. They are overcoming and pushing back the Amalekites with sword. And as Moses, of course, was about 80 years old at this point, imagine his skinny little wrinkled arms getting frail, starting to shake and shiver a little bit, and he starts to fall and droop. And as his hands begin to droop, what happens? Interestingly, the Amalekites start to win the battle. The Israelites start getting pushed back and defeated. And they're losing their grip. And so Moses says, pull a stone up. And so just this pattern of a stone for some reason in Exodus 17 is very important. You know, the stone was struck with the rod and, and water gushed. Now he pulls the stone up. And if he lifts the staff again, now that he's got some strength again, just like the water began to flow from the rock, blood begins to flow from the Amalekite troops, and they begin to lose the battle again. And, and as Moses lifts the same staff that split the Red Sea and crushed the Egyptians, as he lifts that staff higher, the Amalekites are crushed, and they're split, and their forces are divided. They begin to experience the defeat. And literally it says they were devoured by the mouth of the sword. And as the day goes on and the sun begins to cross the sky, his hands are still beginning to be weary. And so then what happens? He pulls in under each armpit... Kind of, kind of an interesting thing, but he pulls in under each armpit, her and Aaron. Aaron, of course, is his brother. 
the first high priest of Israel. Her is the grandson of Caleb, one of the first spies to enter the land. Faithful Caleb, this is his grandson. And these two mighty men come up under Moses' arms and lift his arms back up again until the setting of the sun and the Israelites prevailed and won the victory. Now, I want to ask you this. Even though the Israelites went out there into the battle with their armor and their swords and they had to work and they had to bleed and they had to sweat to get this victory, was it Moses' hands lifted to the sky that actually won the victory for them? Was that the... the uh, condition that all else hung on his arms, if his arms drooped, then God must not have any power. God can't. Is that, is that what's going on? I, I think here's what's going on. You have the, this old 80-year-old man. And far down in the valley below, you have a, a battle going on. What does his hands have to do with the soldiers fighting down below? Really nothing. And they're separated by space, and his arms aren't actually working and doing anything. He's not carrying the sword himself. He's simply holding the staff of God, representing the power of God. And as he lifts his hands to the throne of God, as the text tells us, that's when things begin to change. It's nothing in Moses himself that wins the victory. It's all because of God. But God does say, lift your hands to me and recognize the blessing and the power and the victory comes from me alone. Sometimes I lift my hands when I worship, and sometimes some of you do too, as well. It's a sign of surrender. It's a sign of recognition that to God alone be the glory. That to his throne, and from heaven itself is where the power and the victory comes. And it's okay to, to be small and humble and to be crumpled down into a ball on your knees, humble before the Lord, but it's also okay to stretch your hands to heaven in confidence and in victory and say, thank you, Lord, for achieving what we could not do on our own. Thank you for doing what no human could do. That's the gospel. That's the message we live by and die by, that no human effort will ever achieve our salvation. No, no, no human effort will ever win the victory for us in the spiritual battle. Only the power of God. And so this is the gospel message through an old, frail man who represents each one of us. That nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Lord, I can't contribute to my salvation. I, I, I'm losing steam. I'm losing hope. I'm fatigued. I'm tired. I just can't do it, God. And he says, just lift your hands to me one more time. Look to heaven's throne once more, and you will find power to make it through today and arrive at tomorrow. Amen? Amen. As Moses' hands were lowering and his brothers came alongside of him, we get a picture of, of support from the church that we need to bring to each other, don't we? Moses didn't do this alone. It wasn't just his old hands lifted up. It was two younger men coming alongside to give him strength and endurance for the rest of the day of battle. Let me ask you, are you giving support to others around you that you see weary in the fight? Are you lending them aid? Are you coming alongside, holding them up, walking alongside of them? Do you need some help? Have you asked for help? Have you asked for prayer? Have you said, you know, guys, I, I, I mentioned this, but nobody's really acted on it. I need, I need something more from the church. I need you guys to, to come and step up a little bit more and help because I'm discouraged. I'm downcast. I'm downtrodden. I feel like I'm losing the battle. Would you come alongside me and just stand up under me? It's okay to admit that. It's okay to, to admit that because we need each other. Hebrews chapter 12 outlines that we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfect of our faith, but it also says we need to strengthen our weary hands and our drooping arms and our weak, wobbly knees. And it doesn't just say pick yourself up by the bootstraps. It's telling us in the context of the church. Gather together. Don't stop meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But as you gather, as you help each other, you will strengthen one another and hold those hands up to where Jesus is seated at the right hand, victorious for each one of us. Let me encourage you today to look through the smoke 
to look through the lens of not just today, but tomorrow, and see the victory that's been promised to you, and see it as we do this together. And the last thing the story teaches us is where we should keep our eyes fixed. It makes it very clear we should keep our eyes fixed on the book and on the banner that God has given for us. Verse 14, Yahweh says to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out of the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God says, you better write this down, because you know why? I'm going to wipe them out. You'll forget them otherwise. If you don't write this down, this is the first time in the Bible that God tells someone to write something down. So guess what? It's pretty important. Pretty important. You know the second thing he tells them to write down, which comes shortly after? The Ten Commandments. And we all know about the Ten Commandments, written on stone. But God says, write this down. Don't forget this day. Why? Because Amalek thought they could challenge God himself. Amalek thought they could fight against God's people and prevail. Uh Uh-uh. It ain't happening. God says, don't ever forget who has already decided the battle and whose victory is already secure. It's the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. This is a memorial book, he says. Remember, this is the Bible being written before us. This is people obeying the word of the Lord and writing down Scripture for the very first time. So we can get encouragement from it as as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, read the Old Testament, read the Old Covenant, read the stories of old and be encouraged by them. And it tells us something interesting. It says, the rock that Moses struck that water flowed from, and, and I would say, by association, the, the stone that Moses sat on represents Christ. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, read these stories and remember and get encouragement from the fact that Jesus is your rock. Jesus is your strength. Jesus is the provider in the desert of grace and waters flowing and victory flowing. This is our Christ. And this is who God tells us to look to. When we look to the book, we're going to see our Savior. We're going to see the banner, as he's called here. So here's what Moses is told to do next. Moses built an altar and called on the name of it, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Nisi, or Yahweh Nisi. Nisi means a banner, a victory banner. A flag waved in the battle to rally the troops, to call them to gather in a certain point, to push through the enemy lines. A flag that when all else was uh, failing, when, when dead bodies were all on the battlefield, you see that flag and you gather there, and that's when your troops are reorganized and the battle is once again redoubled in the effort and victory can be achieved. And, and Moses says, I'm looking through the haze of the battle, and I see a banner. I see in heaven a banner waving for us, a flag unfurled for us, and his name is the Lord. And I see that my hand is on the throne of the Lord. I can almost touch the throne of God with these upstretched hands, these old weary hands. I can almost touch the throne of the Lord, and I can see his victory like a banner over me and over us. And he says, the Lord will continue to fight for me and for us against the Malak from generation to generation. He will not give up on his people. So don't give up on God. Don't let go of his throne. Don't stop raising your hands to the throne of heaven and finding victory there for your greatest need. In Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet tells us that Jesus is this banner that was lifted up before the people of Israel. He says this in Isaiah 11 verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, and of him the nations will seek, and his resting place will be glorious. Listen to that. In that day. Now, what day is he talking about? He's talking about the tomorrow that I've been mentioning throughout my sermon. He's talking about that great day when Jesus returns. In that day, that's tomorrow, that's the day of victory. In that day, he says, 
the root of Jesse will rise up. Who's the root of Jesse? Jesus. You know who the fruit of Jesse was? The son of Jesse? David. King David. So if David's the son of Jesse, who's the ancestor of Jesse? Ultimately, it's God, right? Jesus is called the root of Jesse right here. He's called the, the human Messiah that actually was before Jesse. He was eternal. And from Jesse will spring up a great king, but great kings spring up from the Messiah himself. And this Messiah will come back one day and spring up, and he will rise up, and he will be a signal for all the people. Not just a signal for the Israelites, but a signal for the Chinese, the Nigerians, the Koreans, the Germans, everybody will have a chance to see this great risen Savior, risen up from the dead, and if they look to him, it says they'll find rest, and his resting place will be glorious. It doesn't just say that they'll look to him and keep fighting the battle all of life. There will be an end. That great tomorrow will come, and we will see Jesus lifted up, and we will find our great glorious rest in him. That's God's promise. If you don't believe me that this applies to us, then read Romans chapter 15, where Paul takes Isaiah 11, and he quotes it verbatim, and he says, this is Jesus. He says, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal for the peoples, and the nations will hope in him. Do you have hope today, brothers and sisters? Amen. To look past today, whatever your sin is, whatever your shame is, whatever the struggle that you're in, whatever the hardship you're facing, do you have hope to look to Christ yet again? To lift your hand to the throne of heaven and say, God is my victory. He's my banner. Jesus, risen from the dead, conquering sin and death. My hope. The battle belongs to the Lord. Amen? As we go to God in prayer, I encourage you to lift your hands if you want to to the throne of heaven. Find your strength there as the music team comes forward and as those that are helping serve communion come forward at this time. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this great text, which is encouraging to us, I pray. I pray that those of us that have been here today would remember to choose our enemy wisely. We are not enemies with each other. There has been quarreling. There has been testing. There has been grumbling in our own hearts. God, I pray that we would not fight against one another or you, but that we would recognize the true enemy is sin in us and around us, and that the true enemy is Satan, and the true enemy is the system of this world, which is opposed to you. I pray, God, that we would see that the end has already been determined. The victory has already been won in Christ. And though we are weak, and though we are weary, and though we have nothing in our own hands to accomplish victory, even though we have swords and shields and weapons of technology and, and self-help books and all the things we've tried in the past, none of that will gain victory for us. Simply to the cross we cling. Simply to the, the banner that's been lifted high to signal the rallying point of Jesus who died for us and was raised for us. We, we hope in him. He's our resting place. He's our glory. He's our hope and the power that we await today. So God, with our hands and our hearts lifted to heaven, we ask you to help us to fight this battle well. God, this is difficult because we have enemies. We have Trials in our life that make us ashamed and make us discouraged and want us and, and, and make us want to quit. God, I pray that we would see that the beauty of the gospel says that while we were still enemies, while we were still enemies, 
while we were still enemies, God gave his own son so that we might be justified and made right in him and have hope through his blood, through his death. And I pray, God, today that we would continue to hope in Christ, even to the point where we could love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And that we would never curse you or doubt your goodness, God, because you've given us just enough strength to live today, to make it through tomorrow. And that is a victory. You've given us our daily bread as we prayed for today. And you've given us what we need for life and godliness. Help us to hold on in hope, God, with hands outstretched to heaven itself. The Lord is our banner. Jesus, risen, our Savior, we love you and we thank you for first loving us. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please stand with me as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper today. Here at Living Hope, we offer the table of Jesus and give the church to the church. If you're a member of Jesus' church by believing in him, confessing your sins, and turning to him in faith, if you've been baptized into the family, then you're welcome to come to the table. Maybe some of you have been living in sin and you're um, struggling that sin still. This is a place to come find grace. If you struggle with sins that you're actually not struggling with very much, you're just letting them have their way and you're not repenting and asking God to change your heart, we would ask that you search your heart right now. Use this time not to come to the table. The Bible tells us that we would be in great condemnation on ourselves if we do that. And use this time to find not condemnation in Christ, but grace and healing. To forgive you of these things that you've given yourself over to. To find a new help and new hope today in Him. And so if you're ready to turn from your sins, yet again, find yet again the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have actually come to this table hungry and thirsty find all that you need in him. We have wine and we have juice that we offer. We ask that you take what is appropriate for you. Shannon will be holding the wine. The young will be holding the juice. And we ask that when you come and have served and take the elements back to your seat and hold them until we've all been served so we can take this together as one family, the body of Christ. Amen? Let's serve the Lord in prayer. <coughs> Father, thank you so much that you're Grace is sufficient. Your power made perfect in weakness. And though we are weary, and though we have fought battles and lost battles because we've been unfaithful, we come once again and say, Help us, Lord Jesus. We lift our eyes upward to your throne. We lift our hands once again up to the place where you are victim. We have secured feet for us in heaven itself. We have given us hope to make it through today. Until tomorrow comes. Lord Jesus, we thank you for laying down your life for your sheep. You're the great shepherd, the great warrior that fought about us first, that we might fight and be victorious. We love you for dying for us. We love you for rising for us and for living ever to intercede for us. Pray for us sinners now as we pray, Jesus, and empower us once again to live whole lives in the battle that we wage because we do believe. Jesus Christ, and the battle belongs to you. Give us faith to believe that even if we come 